Today, something better than having all of your problems go away. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. Today we're reading a psalm together, sort of seeking to understand what it's about. And one of the most important parts of this psalm, Psalm 59, uh, like so many others we've read already, uh, is the superscript, the statement of when it takes place, because it gives a context, not just to the historical events that surrounded what was happening when David wrote it, but sort of a context to the metaphor, to the principal metaphor uh, that shows up in this psalm, because uh, it is specifically about dogs wandering the city, you know, looking for something to devour, things like that, uh, which all makes sense in light of what David is actually experiencing in the superscript, which I'll read to you in just a moment. So all of these psalms that have these superscripts, it's been remarkable to me how much of what we glean from at least these first two books of the psalms really comes down to understanding what was happening to David before he occupied the throne, uh, and the the pursuit of David by Saul and all of the different places where Saul hunted him down and sought to do him some kind of harm. And in those settings, David is writing these psalms and sharing them, obviously, with the people who've chosen to be with him, who are following him through all of this process. And, and all of the time that he is with Israel, that history uh, informs who they understand their Messiah, their deliverer, their king to be. And I think that informs how we're supposed to understand our relationship with Jesus and how we follow him as our Messiah. And we'll see some of that today. And there's a big part of that that relates to what it is that God is doing that forces us so often to ask the same question that's asked in the Psalms, which is, how long, O Lord? When are you going to come and make these things right? And a part of that answer is to say, be patient, I am faithful, I have not forgotten. But there's a part of that answer that has to do with something in us that needs to be different. And so that's what we get to address today. So the superscript of Psalm 59, to the choir master, according to, and then it's this tune probably, or this rhythm, do not destroy, as it might be called, which, again, you know, as a reminder, and I'm not sure I've said this in an episode to this point, uh, but as a reminder, if that's the name of the tune, it's possible, it's just a name, and that they would just say, oh, yeah, that's just the name of that song, and it doesn't, doesn't have any relevance in content at all, but it's also quite possible that if you assign a tune like that to a psalm, that we would think to ourselves, oh, okay, so this is supposed to be sung to a rhythm or tune that they associate with prayers when you're calling out to God and saying, do not destroy us, you know, please deliver us in some way. So there might be something uh, applicable 
about the name of the psalm in that way. Maybe. I don't know for sure. But it goes on. A miktam of David, most likely meaning a particularly artful psalm. Fine. So we can pay special attention to the metaphors and understand that they are artful, which they often are. So a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. That's the key line for us because it gives us context for when David wrote this psalm, the context within which David expects us to understand this psalm. So a psalm of David, a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. And I don't know if you remember when that transpired, but it's early on, David is still friends with Jonathan. I mean, it's not that they're never friends, but you know, they're not together for too long because after all of this, Jonathan ends up being killed and David's not ever reunited with him. But so what happens is Saul has decided early on that he wants to kill David because he's jealous of the attention that David is getting. And so he's decided to turn against David. And Jonathan first just wins Saul's favor back, most likely. I mean, it seems like it's a sincere thing. It's very short-lived, but it does seem sincere. So Jonathan says to Saul, you know, why would you kill David? David's on your side. You shouldn't do this. David hasn't sinned against you. It would be your mistake and so on. Uh, Innocent blood and so on. And so Saul says, oh, you're right. I'm so sorry. Bring him back. And Jonathan brings David back. And David goes back to playing the harp for Saul. He was in Saul's presence as before. This is all in, by the way, 1 Samuel 19. I'm not, I'm not reading to you this passage. I just want to remind you of what's going on. But it only takes another battle before Saul becomes jealous of him again. And one day, David is playing music for him, and this is when Saul throws the spear at him, right? Uh, wants to pin David to the wall <laughs> with the spear. Uh, but David is a great warrior, and he escapes, so he flees. And I do find it interesting that David's submission to Saul, which is absolute, he never usurps Saul's authority. In all of his life, he never usurps Saul's authority. But he is willing to run from the man. So he tumbles out of the way and runs, and Saul isn't able to get him. But Saul sends messengers. And this is what this psalm is about. Saul sends messengers to David's house to watch him. Now I am reading from 1 Samuel 19 for just a moment so that he might kill him in the morning. And this is when Michael turns against Saul in some ways, but she defends David, remember? So uh, she hides him, and and she's the one that's willing to tell David, hey, you got to escape tonight because these men are here to kill you, and I'll make an effigy of you and put it in the bed. And so she stuffs these things into the bed and makes it look like David is still there because apparently someone can tell from where they're looking whether David's in the bed or not. I don't understand that part. But anyway, whatever it is that's going on, she makes an effigy of him. And then when they come to kill him in the morning, it turns out it's just a pillow of goat's hair or whatever. And so she, so he's not killed and the men find out that he's not there. And David has escaped secretly through the streets that are filled with Saul's men who are watching his house and waiting to kill him. So that's what we have. That's the context. It is David writing a psalm, appealing to God to protect him when people are literally lying in wait for him in the street right outside of his house in order to kill him first thing in the morning. That's what they desire to do. Now, with all of that said, we have to remember when we're reading the psalms, and I love uh, a former a former student of ours at Criswell College and a current pastor of mine at my church, uh, Winston Hotman, has said it this way, that the Psalms are first, and he may have gotten this from another book, I don't know, he reads a lot and he seems to know a lot, 
Uh, but he, but his way of saying it has stuck with me, and it's been, it's particularly helpful, and it's obviously true that we have to keep in mind and remember all of the time that the Psalms are always first and truest about the Messiah. That's who they're, and that's obvious. That's why they're Davidic. That's why they are about David, the Old Testament Messiah. So in so as we start to read this psalm, and we haven't even started into verse one yet, we're just reading the superscript so far, we should keep in mind to think about the Messiah's prayers when we think about the Psalms. So as I'm, you know, as I'm processing that in the in a context like this, I'm thinking of, well, you know, so what does Jesus pray? Well, obviously he's praying the Psalms. I'm not saying he prayed nothing else. But certainly Jesus would have prayed the Psalms. We have obvious evidence of that. And in this context, it, it makes great sense to think of David praying, uh, of Jesus praying the Psalms. And so when I consider a verse like this, when I consider passages like the opening of, of Mark's gospel, and he has right after Jesus has met a few people, and we've heard just a few lines about what Jesus is doing. It says, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out into a solitary, a desolate place, and there he prayed. What is he praying? And if I were to if I were to rephrase that question for us, it would be why are we praying? What is it that drives us to pray? And we could say it's just ritual. We could say it's just the, it's the need to draw my attention to, to to remember the things that are important in the world, and all of those things would be true. But there is a particular reason that David gives us so many of these psalms in a context where our prayer is what it says in the psalm. And it makes perfect sense for Jesus have to have been praying these psalms in the same way. And so as we go through this psalm, what we're addressing is an understanding of what Jesus himself was praying when he was approaching the Father. Why would he? Why would the Son of God, who is God, you know, have to pause and take time to pray to his Father when he is God incarnate in the earth? And obviously, it's partially simply because he is fully man. He's experiencing the world the way we experience the world, too, so as a man. And so that would relate directly to why we pray and why we would need to go out early in the morning to a desolate place and their pray to our Father for the same kind of thing. And so what would that be? And by the way, as we read through the psalm, you'll see that we get an answer to that question almost immediately because the psalm is self-contained in a couple of different ways in subsections of the psalm. So the first five verses really do the whole psalm. They cover the whole thing. But then they are replicated in the rest of the psalm. So it sort of fleshes it out and even in the rest of the psalm, we could have said by the end of verse 10 that we've had enough to complete the psalm. We don't need anything else. But something changes dramatically in verse 11 that I think would give us a, a different kind of understanding of why we need psalms like this and why we need the lesson that it teaches. So starting in verses 1 through 5, first of all, we have sort of an outline or an overview of the entire psalm. In the first two verses, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. And that's the theme of these first two verses, just deliver me. So deliver me from my enemies, O my God. So this is why Jesus is going out to pray, deliver me from my enemies. He prays that through the rest of his ministry. He faces enemies through the rest of his enemy. No surprise there. I got to stop preaching and just read for a second. 
So deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. So the theme, verses one and two, easy. Deliver me. The theme in verses three and four is to see me. I'll clarify what I mean by that in a moment, but it really is that expression, see me. So in verse three, for behold, look, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. And this is an important reminder that this is first and foremost true about the Messiah. We can't say for no sin or transgression of ours. That's not ever true. There are always sins and transgressions of ours that cause these things. But the Messiah can. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready, so awake. Come to meet me and see. The point of this is I'm describing for you the evil that's rising against me, not just so you'll be angry about it, but so you'll wake up, come to meet me, and see where this danger is. And you can hear how appropriate that is to the morning. And to David, you know, talking about the nighttime. I'm going to bed, but it's not me. I'm having to put a dummy in my bed so that I can sneak out through the middle of the night and hope that in the morning I'm still alive while these dogs are out hunting me down. So you can see how the the imagery makes sense in the way that he's saying it. Awake, Lord, come to meet me and see that all of this evil is transpiring around me. So in verses one and two, deliver me. In verses three and four, see me. But in verse five, it's just do the thing that you do, Lord. Do justice. Make things right. It's no longer simply about me, not just delivering me, not just seeing my need, but about you doing what only you can do in the earth, making justice in the earth. So you, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. See, clearly it's not just about David anymore. The people who are outside of his house are not the nations. They're the servants of Saul who've been sent to kill him. But he's gone beyond himself now. He recognizes in this prayer of the Messiah the need for more than him being delivered and him being seen. It's now for Yahweh, the God of Israel, to do justice on the earth among all the nations. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. And then we're given a pause in the song, a sila, whatever that means, you know. So here, pause in the song. Now, as I, as I studied this psalm, it looked to me like, and again, it's very easy for us to impose our own structures on things like this, but this, this brings no harm to it, even if it's just me seeing it as a convenient way to convey it. It does look to me like those opening five verses are the overview or the outline for the rest of the psalm, because in verses six through 10, he's going to pray for deliverance. We need a deliverer. He's going to describe the deliverance that we need. And then in verses 11 through 15, he's going to follow that up with the desire to be seen and for us to know that we're being seen, for it to, to persist in the way God is delivering us. And then the last two verses going beyond that to ultimately what God wants to accomplish with all of this. It's not just about us. It's about what God is wanting to do with it. And so I I suspect that the way the psalm is to be understood is in those first five verses, the overview of the psalm, and then the rest of the psalm, a way of sort of 
breaking us over so that we can see why it looks like it does. Because, you know, we're always trapped with this question. You know, if God is so glorious and so powerful and so good, why is he having to use evil to get our attention and to make us glorify him and worship him and serve him and trust him and so on? And part of the point here is, I don't think it answers that question philosophically. I'm not saying this psalm is some kind of apologetic for Christianity or for Judaism or something like that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the Psalms do something for us that apologetics and philosophy and theorizing doesn't do. The Psalms put us in our real context in the fallen world without saying, oh, this is why the world fell or this is how the world fell or whatever it is, but simply saying not where did all of this come from, but what does God want to accomplish with it now that it's here? I mean, here it is, and we're dealing with it. What does he want to do with it? Uh, As I mentioned to you not too long ago, when I had a a young child ask me that question, you know, why is there evil in the world if God is all-powerful and all-good? And the answer to the question many times is for us not a theoretical or philosophical answer, but a shift in our way of seeing the world so that instead of saying, why would God have allowed these things to happen from the past? We instead say, what does God want me to do because these things have happened? Not where did it come from, but what am I supposed to do with it? What's the result of it supposed to be? Which really for us, for those of us who are not God, which is most of us, is a much more important question. Not how do I grasp the depths of the knowledge and understanding of God Almighty, but what am I supposed to do as a person who lives in a world that I didn't create and a world that I don't control? What does God want from me? And that's what this psalm does with it better, and then it still brings it back to saying, and what would God do with that that would be so worthwhile? Uh, and so it's a, it's a really important psalm for those reasons, for that reason as well. So verses one through five sort of give us that overview. So now we take one section at a time, verses one and two, for instance, and then we say, so what are we supposed to get from the prayer to be delivered? So in verses six through, through 10, I mean, six through 10, what are we supposed to get from that? And obviously the idea is that we need a deliverer, but beyond that, that we have one, that, that we have someone to turn to and ask for deliverance. And what's fascinating about this to me is that the Messiah, the Messiah, the one we turn to as our deliverer, models for us what it means to need a deliverer. That's a remarkable fact. Jesus doesn't come into the world just, you know, sweeping his hand and destroying all of the enemies who would come against him. Jesus is facing a constant need for deliverance and going out while it's still dark in the morning and praying to his father for that deliverance. He models what it means to be people who need a deliverer, but also have a deliverer. So in verses one and two, it's deliver me from my enemies, oh my God, deliver me from those who work evil, and so on. And what we know from that in these, in this that this, I think, verses 6 through 10 sort of divides itself in three sections as well. I'm not going to elaborate on it very much. But it does make the point in the first couple of verses in this section that the enemies are just relentless. And this is the sort of guiding metaphor in the psalm. I say that because it's repeated. The very words are repeated below. 
So each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. Those words are repeated for us. Now, the second half of the metaphor changes toward the end to make it even more emphatic how persistent this problem is. But the relentlessness of the enemies is is here because each evening they come back. And David can write this sincerely already because Saul has been opposed to him several times by now. And no matter where he turns, somebody is turning against him. Somebody is speaking ill of him to Saul, is saying, have you heard what the women are singing to David while they're only singing this to you? Someone is always against him. So he says, each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are. And you can hear that. I mean, this is from the man who they're surrounding his house, waiting to kill him this night. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who think they will hear us? They think they can get away with it no matter what. This is the ministry that Jesus faces throughout his life. He is serving in a way that people are always going to be opposing him. By the time we get to the third chapter in Mark's gospel, this is when he enters the synagogue and there's a man with a withered hand. And, you know, for Jesus, this is a man who can be healed. And then that miracle will lend authority or credence to the people who need to hear the lessons that he's going to teach. So it makes perfect sense to him to see a man who's in need and meet the need. Imagine that where for everyone else that's there, for the, for the Jewish leaders, that is, who are there, the Pharisees and, and, and those who are chief in the, in the synagogue, they see a man with a withered hand and they think to themselves, ooh, I wonder if he's going to try to heal this man on the Sabbath day because if he does, he'll be violating the Sabbath and we can trap him. And so here's how the story reads in Mark 3. They watched Jesus. This is the second verse of Mark 3. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And by the way, when he does it, Jesus knows what their thoughts are, and he's the one who says to them, well, is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to do harm, to save life, which is what he's doing, he's trying to help a man, or to kill, which is what they're doing by plotting against him. And they can say, yep, we're not lifting heavy metals doing it, but they're trying to kill Jesus by using a law on the Sabbath that they think somehow justifies what they're doing to destroy him while he's healing someone else. The Pharisees then go out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. There they are bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, because they're thinking to themselves, who will hear us? Nobody will know. We'll plot secretly, and God won't know, and we'll never answer to him. Jesus faces exactly the same thing that David is facing here. And it happens again in Mark 12, just to give specific language to it. They send him some of this, is, this has to do with, you remember the question about whether to pay taxes or not. They send him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. The whole point for them is to find a way to catch him, to kill him, to get rid of him, so that he can't be the thing that God has commissioned him to be for his people. The same thing he had commissioned David to be for his people, the Messiah. I don't mean that Jesus is not the Messiah and David is the type of the Messiah, but I mean David is the Old Testament embodiment of that Messiah. And then it's finally realized genuinely and fully and completely for God to come into the flesh and be our deliverer, our Messiah in the New Testament in Jesus, obviously. But this is the point, that this is Jesus fulfilling the same thing in the New Testament. Okay, so the first part 
of the psalm is making this point, that the enemies that we're going to end up needing to pray about and seek deliverance from, they are relentless. But at the same time that they're relentless, and we see this in other psalms too with different metaphors, the same time that the enemies are relentless, Yahweh is just as unthreatened. Uh, he is totally undisturbed by them. But you, O Lord, and this is not a new metaphor in the psalm. Psalm 2 gives exactly the same language. You, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the, and again, it goes beyond David's need. You hold all the nations in derision. So I'm not going to worry about these few servants of Saul that you've sent outside the house in order to trap me. I mean, fine, they plot, they think no one's listening, but God, not only have you heard their secrets being whispered in conspiratorial power, but you've laughed at them when you heard them. Psalm 2 says exactly the same thing. He who sits in the heavens, and it is, again, the one who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've already set my king on Zion, my holy hill. David's already anointed. We already know he's going to become king. There's no threat. God knows what he's doing. Yahweh knows what he's doing. David trusts him. So Yahweh is unthreatened. The enemies are relentless, but Yahweh is not really challenged by them, no matter how relentless they are. So where, where do we go? Verses 9 and 10. We find our refuge in Yahweh. Not complicated, right? The enemies are relentlessly going to be there. Yahweh's not threatened. <laughs> Let's go hide in Yahweh. So we find our refuge in Yahweh. Verse 9, oh, my strength, I will watch. Key language. I will watch for you, O God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. And this is what, and I'll come back to the watching language later in the, in the psalm, but this is what Jesus is doing in Mark 135 when he's going out to pray. Again, he can pray any number of psalms in any number of directions, but really, given the context of the enemies that are going to be hunting him down his entire ministry, and they're always going to be opposing him, it's not a surprise that Jesus is watching. And so, up early in the morning, before dawn, going out into a solitary place, he kneels and prays to his Father about relentless enemies, but an unthreatened Yahweh. And he finds his refuge in his heavenly Father. The same place we're supposed to find our refuge. Not complicated. Perfect psalm, complete by verse 10. Done. Don't even need to do verses 11 through 17. But 11 through 17 gets so weird. They turn it completely on its head in a way, but really they just return it to what its original purpose was. You'll see as we get there. So now we're going to go into verse 11, even though we could have stopped because it's a perfect psalm by verse 10. We go into verse 11 to see where he's making the shift, the pivot point in this psalm. And it has to do with how persistent our needs here are. So in verse 3, we saw it with, Behold, they lie and wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife for me. In verse 4, it's not for any fault of mine. They run and they make ready. So awake, come to meet me. See the need. So what we're going to find is a persistent need met by a persistent deliverer, one who's always there. And, and so the point here is what God is trying to accomplish in us. So here, here it begins in verse 11, and here's the, here's, the, here's the phrase. This makes no sense. If you're reading through the psalm and paying any attention at all, I don't mean that insultingly. I just mean, you know, sometimes you get in the middle of something and you're not really paying attention to the details. If you're reading the psalm and you're paying attention to the details, 
You get to a verse 11 and you just stop and you go, what? That doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't even make sense in the context of what it's about to say. By the time you get to verse 13, he's saying, consume them in wrath, consume them until they are no more. But verse 11 says, but don't kill them. Don't kill them. Kill them not, lest my people forget. He's not even praying just for himself anymore. As the Messiah, he's interceding for his people. David, who's being pursued by Saul's people to be slaughtered that night, is writing his psalm so that his people will not forget their need for a deliverer. But God, don't kill these people who are trying to kill me because I don't want my people to forget what you've done. That's almost an embarrassing testimony to what we're like as people, right? But we are like that. I mean, when things are going terribly, we blame God. Like, why isn't God thinking about me? Why is God allowing this to happen? And when things are going great, we forget all about him. Well, of course things are going great. I've provided for myself, and I'm in a powerful economy and so on. So kill them not, he says, lest my people forget in verse 11. Make them instead, don't kill them, make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, for the words of their lips, these people who pursued me, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, There's no. this is not an act of mercy on his part. I mean, he's praying for judgment on them. Consume them in wrath, consume them until they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth, Selah. That opening line is just so odd. Do not kill them because I don't want my people to forget. So let them live and yet consume them in your wrath. Cause them to totter. Let them be trapped in their own pride and so on. But it's because I don't want them to forget that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. He wants everyone to remember that. In our way of thinking about the world, and I, I, and I don't know why it wouldn't be this way. I mean, this is just natural. We want problems to go away. That's what it means for it to be a problem. You solve problems. You, make, you eliminate problems. If a thing is a problem, of course it's something you don't want. Otherwise, you wouldn't call it a problem. You'd call it a means. But this is important. We want problems to go away, but God wants more than that. He wants something better than that. God wants us to watch for him. And so in verse 14, the second part of this second section in verses 11 through 15, what I'm talking about. So in verse 14, he says, he repeats the metaphor, the metaphor that began to remind us how relentless the enemies are. And then he's praying for a deliverer. And then when the deliverer, he's confident, totally confident and, and says, and I'm hiding in you, you are my refuge, but don't kill them, Lord. Don't kill them. Each evening, they come back. This is the same language that he used earlier. Each evening, they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. But now, he says, this time, he says, they wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. The, the idea of the persistence of the presence of this threat, and I know we think of dogs as pets or maybe loose pets. These are not pets. These are the dogs that were watching for animals or they have sort of that wolf instinct, wild dogs that are threatening to the city and hunting things down and devouring Jezebel when she, you know, is dumped in the city street. 
I don't mean to chuckle at someone's death, but I mean, it's been a long time, so surely it's okay by now, right? So they wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. And this is the idea that they're, they're persistently there. Each evening, they come back. Yeah, tonight I know that Saul's servants were sent to stalk outside of my house and, and kill me in the morning, and Michael helped me to escape, and I snuck out, and I heard their whispers, and God, I know you hear their whispers too, and you can judge them, and you protected me, and I'm glad for that this evening, but it's not about this evening. Each evening, they come back. And think about it. For David, obviously, this is true. His entire minute, his entire career before he sits on the throne is spent running away from the enemies of Saul, whether it's Saul himself or Doeg or whoever else Saul is sending against him. And then even after David is on the throne, it's his own son chasing him off the throne. Each evening, they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl. If they do not get their fill, there is no end to it. And in that same sense, so, so you know, so what does God want? What, what does he want to happen? Well, he said it above, kill them not lest my people forget. He doesn't want us to forget. He doesn't want us to be in a place where we say, hey, everything's okay now. I don't need to worry about God. I don't have to run into Yahweh as my refuge. I don't need to get on my knees in the morning and beg for God to keep me from being slaughtered because I think I'm okay. You are not okay. And Jesus is teaching the disciples that when he's preparing to leave, as Jesus is approaching the cross, he's trying to teach his disciples how to watch. Can you sit and pray and say, I know there are enemies and Lord, we need you to be our refuge. We need you to be our shelter. We want you to be our safety. And so in Mark 14, as Jesus comes to Gethsemane and he brings the disciples, the three, and he says to them, sit here while I pray. And he takes Peter with him and James and John. So he's already said it to the other disciples. You sit here and you wait. I'm going to go pray with these three. And he begins to be greatly distressed and troubled. Then he says to Peter and James and John, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch because the enemy is persistent need to watch. Going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed and he's saying to his father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Here I am praying exactly like the Messiah prayed in the Old Testament, exactly like David prayed in the Old Testament. Lord, deliver me from this enemy. Deliver me. So he fell on the ground and he prayed if it were possible for the hour to pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. I know the dogs will persist. And he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. It's not about the moment. Peter, if you're not watching, you're not going to see the guards come and take us. It's not about that. It's about teaching him to persistently seek the face of his father in heaven because the evil is always going to be coming to devour them. He's teaching them to watch. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You are going to struggle. The enemy is always going to be hunting you down. And again, he went away and prayed and said the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping and they didn't know what to answer him. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. You'll see it's still going to happen. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let us go. My betrayer's at hand. He's right here. He's outside the door, you know, right outside the door of my house. He's coming to get me. You get the idea, I'm bringing it back into the psalm, right? So the, the point is, we want problems to go away, but what God wants is more. He wants us to watch for him. He wants us to run into him 
as our refuge. And we can say, oh, I just want all my problems to go away, but he wants more than that. And this is the point, that the faithfulness of God, the mercy of God, the steadfast love of God, the covenantal love, faithfulness, steadfastness, and mercy of God, the chesed, that God's steadfast love is more important than the evil that's committed against us and more important than our need to be delivered from facing that evil. In other words, God doesn't just want us to see a world that's perfect. God doesn't just want us to overcome our problems. He wants us to see how faithful he is. This is what's going on in verse 5 at the beginning of the psalm. You, Lord of hosts, are the God of Israel. So rouse yourself to demonstrate justice. Punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. What God wants to demonstrate in this fallen world is that in the midst of our evil, he is still faithful to his promises. He is still faithful to his chosen one. And he's still faithful to us as we're in his chosen one. So in verse 16, David is saying, this psalmist, a psalmist writing to us in the context of men sitting outside of his house waiting to kill him. I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. After this night, when men are plotting to kill me and I'm sneaking through the streets while the dogs are waiting to devour me, in the morning, I'm going to be singing out loud about your steadfast love because you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in this day of my distress. Which was more important? that he got away from the enemy or that he realized God was his fortress every day? Well, why would that be more important for him and not for us? So he goes on and he says, oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you for you, oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. And the repetition of the word fortress at the beginning of the psalm and here at the end of the psalm is the reminder of how important that is. Not that there are no dogs in the streets, but that there's a fortress we can run into and be safe. And where do we run into it? In our moments of prayer, repetition of a psalm like this, coming before the Father and saying, help me, I need your help. It's not being free of problems. It's having a fortress where we're safe that matters to Yahweh as he's teaching us. I was sharing with somebody the other day that uh, my uh, wife and I and her sister had uh, visited Colorado recently, and I'm trying to set up for astronomy and stuff, you know, so you got to have somebody to go shopping with. So that's my wife brings her sister along. So she, they get to go do stuff during the day. I say shopping to trivialize it, but it actually is shopping anyway. But anyway, the point is they, uh, they, they, they were doing stuff like that. I was doing astronomy at night, but the fourth night, the third night, fourth day, uh, there was, there were clouds. So I slept. So the next morning it's like, I want to go somewhere. I'll take you somewhere. So we got in the truck and went down to a ghost town. So a ghost town is just, you know, an empty town. I've had people I've told this story to recently. I'm not looking across the room at my producer uh, who actually believed it was about haunted houses or something like that. Not that. A ghost town, you know, like it used to be a mining village or it used to be a, a rail depot or something like that, and now nobody lives there. So there are a bunch of dilapidated buildings or old empty buildings, and it's kind of weird to go to a place where you see the remnants of a city, but you don't see any life left in the city. And so we go down to this little ghost town, 
And, uh, you know, it's a ghost town, so obviously nobody's living there and nobody's living anywhere near there, so we're way outside of cell range. There's no contact whatsoever. And so we, we, we drive down for 45 minutes. We visit for, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 minutes in the ghost town, and then we drive back another 45 minutes. So by the time we come back, we've been out of contact with anybody for a couple of hours or a little more than that. And my sister-in-law's phone suddenly starts dinging. I mean, as soon as we hit cell phone range, and she's got messages from everybody. And as it turns out, a close friend of their family had uh, passed away, had died that morning, had just uh, collapsed and died. And so it was, you know, everybody in the family is trying to reach her and tell her and say, oh, this terrible thing has happened. And of course, not long after that, we just bundled up and got all of our stuff out of the cabin and drove straight home so that she could get back to be with her family to go through those, uh, you know, emotions and the grieving and and the loss together and to support the rest of the family and all that. And and all of that happened. So all of that was fine. The 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 thing that that, that struck me is that while we were so busy going down to this ghost town and doing all the stuff we thought was important and having a good time and visiting and and accomplishing something, you know, taking pictures of this and that and learning what this plant is and that plant and all those things that were really interesting in the moment that went, I mean, as soon as we got back in cell phone range, suddenly something else completely obliterated all of that and took over all of our thinking about what was important and real and actually happening in the world. And we, in, in, in sort of an inverted fashion, do the same thing. I mean, we are, we are so busy visiting down here in the world where the dead live, you know, in the world where we're making businesses and buying food and selling properties and earning a name and establishing fame, and we're going to accomplish this, and we're going to earn that degree and go get whatever. We're busy for so many hours, and we just very rarely come back into cell phone range where we get on our knees and we get these pings from God where he says, do you remember that in all those problems you have down there in the world, in all those things that you're facing by yourself, that in all of those things, all I wanted was for you to discover that I am completely faithful, that you can trust me and that I want you to turn to me and ask for help. Do you just remember that? If we would just get on our knees to hear that ping every once in a while, it would change everything we're experiencing while we're down here. So this is the point that I'm trying to get at, that when I said at the very beginning, you know, what's better than having all your problems go away? You know, there's there's an answer to that question in this psalm. Faith, and this is the answer, faith in the one who delivers you from those problems. We're not called to live problem-free in this fallen world. We're called to live dependent on our deliverer. We're called for our faith to begin measuring up to his faithfulness. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.